Well, good morning, Trinity. My name is Chris Colquitt. I'm the senior pastor, and it's, as always, a great joy to be with you. I'd like to welcome any visitors we have this morning. I'd love to meet you after the service. I think I'll be out in the foyer in the back. A couple of uh, additional announcements that I wanted to encourage us with this morning. The first, uh, if you were a parent of a young elementary student, you hopefully got an email from me. It was two-email day on Friday for y'all. Announcing, telling, hoping that we are going to be able to begin offering another children's worship option for our second and third graders. This is going to be different. It's going to be a mini sermon that's going to help our children to grow in their ability to listen and learn uh, during worship, during the preached word. For that to happen, I'm going to be a teacher for that. A lot of our other pastor and other leaders are going to be involved in that, but we need volunteers to help do crowd control and lead discussion. So, If you like that idea, I need you to sign up to volunteer, probably be once every eight weeks or so, uh, to go back with our children to help them to hear a message from the same text that we'll be doing in here. Um, So sign up for that. We'll put that in Trinity Life this week, the actual link to sign up for those who are not young parents and haven't received that already. Second, next week, we're going to start to see more people around here. Uh, UVA is coming back, and with that, our seats will be slightly fuller. Our hope and our thought is that we're going to be able to stay at one service for the fall, but it'll be tight. So what I'm going to ask you guys to do next week is two things. Beginning next week, squeeze in when you get here, all right? No spreading out. Sit in your seats. Try to be in the middle of your aisle. If you have your special seat, next week's not the time to sit there. Sit in the middle of your aisle (laughs) and welcome people. Um, Look for faces you don't know and smile at them. Two, we're going to have an overflow room that we may need to use. And so would love, and we're going to send an email out to the community groups this week, because one way we can do this is have community groups sign up to go and volunteer one Sunday to go sit in that room. But I'd love it if no new people had to sit in the overflow room or even in the alcove back here where they can't see me. So if you would be willing to love your neighbor by sitting in those places, that would be most wonderful. So... With all that, hopefully you received my other letter on Friday in which I tried to give us as a church a little bit of direction and vision for this new year. We're emerging from a hard time in the life of Trinity. And my conviction is that what I want this year to be about is fundamentally to focus on some really basic and core things to what it means to be a church. There will be time for big ambitious plans in the life of Trinity, But this year, I want to be about the extraordinary and and exhilarating ordinariness of the life of the church. That we would focus on Christ and faith, on one another in love, and forward on God's mission and forward to our eternal hope. This two weeks, this week and next, I wanted to take the chance to preach a little bit on those themes um, before we get into our fall sermon series in Genesis. And to do that, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be reading the same text each week. It's a long text, and I'm not preaching from the whole thing. I'm really going to be focused on verse 12, and we're going to use the context as needed each week to help us. But it's a beautiful text, and so we're going to read it all together. And if you don't hear what you heard read talked about today, come next week, and we'll probably talk about it then. This is 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 2. It's printed for you in your bulletin. 
Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is God's word. Let me pray. Great God in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. Lord, we couldn't know you if you didn't tell us about yourself and what glorious things we hear in the pages of scripture. Would your spirit who breathed these words out through the apostle Paul work among us, help me to speak truly and clearly and boldly and help all of us to receive and see and trust Christ Jesus our one and only hope. Father, I pray this morning that as we gather, if there are those in this room who do not yet know you, that they would hear the gospel proclaimed, that they would hear a sweet, sweet song to which they long to sing. Bless us, we pray, Lord. May all those who seek you rejoice and be glad. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to reread verse 12 for us, which is going to be our focus. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, This morning, I want to focus on the second half of that sentence in the phrase, the good confession. We'll think about the first half next week. I'll begin by noting that the word confession here is not used in our most common usage of that word. Even within the church, when we talk about confession, usually we're talking about acknowledging sin or guilt. We confess 
our sins. That's a good usage of that word. It's an important usage of that word. Here, though, the term is being used positively and more broadly to describe a confession of faith. This is common throughout the Bible. Romans 10, which we'll look at in a minute, talks about confessing Christ as Lord. 2 Corinthians 9 speaks of our confession of the gospel of Christ. And then throughout Hebrews, which we'll also bring in here later on, there's this call to hold fast to your confession. This word confession, the good confession, is a statement of Timothy's, Timothy's faith. We'll talk much more about the term in just a second. But as a starting point, I wanted us to notice that reality. Now, as we together think and pray and dream about our life as a church, I want us this morning to think about this good confession, and particularly how our confession, how our faith in Christ relates to our community together as the church. To use that slogan I put in that email, forward together in Christ, how does the Christ part relate to the together part? How does our faith in Jesus bind us together? It's something we talk about a lot, but in looking at this phrase and in this text, I think we're going to see some of the mechanics and hopefully be encouraged in how those two things relate. Here's our outline this morning if you're taking notes, three points as is often the case. First, the community of the good confession. Second, the content of the good confession. And third, the context of the good confession. Community, content, and context. That's where we're headed. The first thing I want to see is the community that's formed by the confession. The creation of community, the creation of community is inherent in the very nature of confession. To confess is to be brought into community. We're going to learn a Greek word this morning, which is the word translated confession. That word is homo legeo or homo uh, logia if in the noun form. You can, some of you Greek or, or Latin folks can hear, it's a compound word, homo, which means same, and logos, which means word. A confession is a same word, all right? That's, that's the meaning of the Greek term. A confession is a common word of a community. It's something that everyone says the same. The content, context in which Timothy is making this confession, this good confession, is probably, we don't know for sure, but it's probably at his baptism, where he would have taken vows or made a statement of his faith. We do the same thing. If we have an adult baptism, the the person being baptized takes those vows. If we're baptizing an infant, the parents take those vows. And you'll notice they're the same vows week in and week out when we baptize folks into this church. These are common words, words that we share, vows that we share. We don't let people write their own baptismal vows. Young people, if someday you ask me to do your wedding, I might do it, but I will have my first rule in my letter to you is you may not write your own vows. These vows we take are common. This word that Timothy testified to was a common word. A confession is a communal word. It's the same word. We all say 
the same thing. And by its nature, that same word creates a community around that confession. Right? That's just what it is to make a confession. And we can see that in this text by its opposite. Look at the beginning of the text. If anyone, Paul says, teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit, he understands nothing, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. And then what happens? Second half of verse 4. Which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. In a confessing community, a same word community, different words, which is there, if you, if you look up that teaching a different doctrine word, you Greek scholars, the, the prefix there is hetero, which is the opposite of homo, it's different. A different word creates division and dissension in a community. That's what Paul's saying. So the sound words of Christ, the homologia, the same word, the confession, creates community, strengthens community, and a different word, unsound words, threaten it. They weaken it. They might even destroy it. That's just the nature of a confession. It creates and strengthens community. Okay. Let's pause here for a moment of cultural observation. This sort of confession is at once profoundly countercultural and sounds weird, and also, though, I want to suggest a deep hunger and longing of everyone in this room and everyone in this city. Now, the smarty pants sociologists over at UVA will tell you that we live in what they'll call an age of expressive individualism. We live in an age where you are asked to find your own truth and then live by it in an expressive way. Throw off conventions. Don't listen to your parents or your community or anything else. You've got to find what's true for you and then live authentically to that truth. We could quote Charles Taylor here, but if you've ever heard Charles Taylor quoted, it's, if you've tried to read Charles, it's not going to work, okay? So instead... I'm going to do something for our our young people and and for everyone else, which is to use Elsa, okay? (laughs) Elsa famously said, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. That's it, okay? That's the summary of this vibe in our culture today. Got to figure it out ourselves. I want to find my own voice, my own words, and I want to live authentically to it. Into that world... The idea that I would say, you know what you need? You need to come into a confessing community and say the same thing as other people sounds wild and actually harmful. And yet, if we think about our culture today, and we could quote Charles Taylor here as well, but we'll just use Elsa again. When you live that way, you wind up in an ice castle by yourself freezing cold and exhausted. And that's descriptive of our culture today. We're told to find our own meaning and our own truth, but we find that that quest is both terribly exhausting and terribly lonely. And so here's what happens, and you can see this if you go over 
to UVA in a couple of weeks with a bunch of free thinkers. You can see this if you get online and go to different blogosphere groups. It's true on the left, it's true on the right. Free thinkers tend to think alike. And they tend to find a bunch of other people who think like them and form communities that think the same. Y'all notice that? You can see this in our, in our sexual and gender ethics. Not to pick on one thing in particular, but it's, it's, we, we throw off all the rules. But what comes in its place? A ton of rules about how you're supposed to talk and act and think. I'm not interested in this moment in thinking about criticism of our culture. There is a deep incoherence in the ELSA model. What I'm more interested in is seeing this deep hunger and longing that's in us and that can't be killed. That even when we try to go be free thinkers, finding our own truth, we naturally gravitate to other people, to communities, to confessions, to orthodoxies of whatever sort we can find. This tells us something deeply true about who we are as humans, how we were created. You and I are looking for a confessional community. We want to find the same word and we want to say it with other people. That's a good and right impulse within us. And to those who are here this morning who have not yet called on the name of Jesus and made that confession, I want to encourage you that that longing is good and that this confession that the people around you make is a sweet one that you are invited to join in. And to the Christians in this room who live by their Elsa sense more often than they should, I want to challenge that. You don't have to find your own truth. It is good. It is very good for you to sit within a confessing community and speak same words that have been passed down for generation upon generation. Resist that urge within you. There is a beautiful unoriginality to the Christian faith. Okay. So our first point is simply an observation. It's really just from the word itself that confession creates community. A confession is inherently communal. By its nature, it's creating a community of people who are saying the same thing. We have a hunger for that, and it's good. So what's special about the Christian confession? That's just a sociological fact, right? To put it bluntly and evocatively, what's different about us gathering as Christians to confess our faith and the Hitler youth getting together and speaking those creepy words together, right? That created a lot of community. Fascism creates a lot of community. It's not good community. So what's different? That's a question worth asking. And that takes us to our second point, the content of the good confession. What did Timothy confess? Well, we don't have his exact words here, but we do have a very important clue. Look at verse 13. Paul goes on, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. And look what he says. Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. 
made the good confession. Same exact phrase, both with a definite article, the. There's good reason to think those two things are connected. You read in your Bible, Jesus made the good confession. Timothy made the good confession. So what did Jesus say? Well, if you flip back to John chapter 18, you can see this scene before Pilate. I won't read it all to us. But in that scene, Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, in his marvelously Jesus way, is sort of evasive in his answer. But he says this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' testimony before Pilate, his good confession before Pilate, seems to be concerning his kingship. A claim to kingdom, to his kingship over his kingdom, which happens to be an eternal kingdom, which doesn't threaten Caesar's kingdom, which is part of what he's trying to say to to Caesar. But importantly, that he is indeed king. We'll talk about the eternal part next week. But the core confession of Christ before Pilate here is to his kingship. And this lines up with what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, a famous passage you may have heard before, describing the way of salvation. He says this, if you confess, same word, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Lordship and kingship are closely tied together. And so if we're looking for an idea of what is it, what what do we think Timothy was making that good confession about? There's a pretty good indication that it was a confession of the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ. A confession that Christ himself made before Pilate. All right. How does that relate to community? How does that confession, that particular content of the confession, create community? Well, our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and King is effect, not effectively, it is our pledge of allegiance as citizens of Christ's kingdom. In declaring Christ's kingship, his lordship, we speak to our own citizenship in that kingdom. Confessors of his kingship are citizens of his kingdom. And this citizenship, this shared identity as citizens of Christ's kingdom is the very basis of our community. It's closely tied to our lives together. Ephesians 2 a massively important passage for this theme. We'll just read a bit of it, verses 12 and six, 12 to 13. Remember, speaking to Gentiles, you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were not in, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Our confessional community is the community of fellow citizens, the community of those who declare the kingship, the lordship of Jesus. So the words we say when we speak together bind us together as God's people. You all see that? And these citizenship bonds are powerful bonds, or they should be. They are in our world. 
You'll see this in immigrant communities within our own countries, with our own country. Some of y'all have been expats abroad. You see that abroad. People from the same place have a natural kinship. People who are citizens bind themselves together. It's a good and beautiful thing. I once had the privilege of spending some time in India, and I'm a picky eater, and it's a problem, okay? And I'll confess that. And so we were, we were serving in India, and there was, we were eating real Indian food, which is lovely, but after a while, the, the American in me was, was having a hard time. And so we went to Calcutta at the end of this time, and in Calcutta, you know what there was? A McDonald's. <laughs> there was a McDonald's. And I, I don't eat McDonald's in America, but you better believe I went to that McDonald's, right? It was, it was wonderful. And there were other Americans there. And I said, hey, we're okay, right? <laughs> Same thing happens in Charlotte. There's a Torchy's Tacos here, which is a Texas thing. And so as a Texan, I just feel, I just look around like anyone else from Texas here? It's great. That's good, right? The church, this is a, this is a deep and rich vein of thought that we don't have time to get into fully today. The church is a McDonald's in a foreign land. Or better, the church is the embassy of heaven. This group here is a cultural center of a heavenly kingdom. We gather united by one thing, which is our citizenship in heaven, which we confess when we declare that Christ is Lord. Our common confession binds us together as citizens, as kinsmen, as heirs to the promise. I'm going to pause here and just give you permission to rejoice in that. There's, there's a reality today, which is good, and it's actually biblical, that sees with suspicion division, sees with suspicion exclusionary claims, sees with suspicion sectarianism. But don't let that prevent you from rejoicing in the society of God's confessing people. There is neither Greek nor Jew, and yet there is those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life and those who call on Christ as Lord. And it's good to be together. And it's good to have an identity with one another when you find out your friend or your coworker or your neighbor is a Christian, it's okay to rejoice in that. It's great. It's even okay for you to Google whether or not this celebrity or athlete is a Christian and really hope the answer is yes. That's kind of silly. Who else has done that? I, I do that sometimes. Uh, and yet it's reflective of this deep longing for the community of God's confessing citizen people. It's a beautiful thing because it tells us, among other things, that we aren't alone. And that's going to take us to our third point. We've seen that our confession creates community just by its very nature. When we say the same thing, we do that together. And the specific content of that confession concerning the lordship of Jesus Christ binds us together as citizens of a kingdom, as expats, as exiles in a foreign land who are kinsmen, I want to finish by thinking about the power of that community that goes back into our faith. And this takes us to our third point, the context 
of the good confession. Notice the final words of verse 12. You made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy's confession of faith, like ours, is made in community. Now, those witnesses were witnesses to the confession, to Timothy's confessing act. That's true. But even more, they were co-witnesses to the, to the statement, to the content of that confession. The community formed by our confession means that our confession is always made in the context of fellow confessors, always made in community. And here the tables beautifully turn because we've said that confession creates community, right? Said that confession creates community, but here we're going to see that the community turns back and strengthens our confession. Hebrews 12:1 after recounting in Hebrews 11 all the heroes of our faith says this therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us the presence of other witnesses of many witnesses in our life is the spirit's work by which he encourages and strengthens us in our own confession of faith In a moment, before we take communion, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. It's a powerful statement of our unity as the people of God. But something's going to happen to some of you. You're going to forget the words or mess up the words, right? You're going to forget the whole descended into hell part because you grew up in a church where you didn't say that, right? And you're going to be off. And you know how you're going to get back on track? By these voices around you that are saying the same words. That is the most beautiful picture of what we have in the church. Brothers and sisters, you will forget the words. You will forget from time to time how to say Christ is Lord. And if we are confessing together as a people, we'll hear our brother and sister saying it and we'll remember. This is the power of this people that we speak the same word in community and that we carry one another into that confession. We confess together, we sing together. In conclusion, I just want to notice one thing. Paul, Paul underlines for Timothy what we've already noticed, which is that Christ himself made the good confession. It's not something we normally talk about. It's not, we don't normally think about Christ as saying the same thing that we say. But it's really actually a beautiful and important theme in the scriptures. Because we look back to Hebrews 12. Read it again because it's so beautiful. Verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, the chief witness is Jesus. That word founder, the archegos of our faith, the first one, some translations translate that, the author of our faith. 
Jesus wrote the words and he was the first to proclaim them. He was the first to confess them. He is the lead singer, the lead catechist in our faith. His strong voice is what carries us along in our faith. He is the faithful witness of Revelation 1, 5. He is the good confessor. Follow him. Listen to his voice. Speak the words. Listen to one another and be encouraged. Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we do rejoice that you have called us together as a confessing people to speak this glorious word of our kingdom citizenship with you. We do pray for those in this room who have not yet made that declaration. Oh, would they know the free and open offer that is theirs. That you, by the power of your spirit, would speak into their heart that they might speak out, Abba, Father. God bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.